Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we'll continue our sermon on Jesus is the bread of life. So if you will turn in your Bibles to John 6. We'll go look at the passage again this morning before we pray. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life come down from heaven, or I am the bread that come down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Let us pray. Father God, we come this morning and praying that you would set aside all distractions, Lord, so that we can focus on the deep theological truths found in this passage. Lord, I pray also that as we study this passage, that we will have a better appreciation for the bread of life. And may he satisfy all of our desires. For we praise in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is part two of our study. And last week we looked at the beginning of Jesus' first I am statement, in which he said, I am the bread of life. In examining this important statement, in light of the context of chapter six, we highlighted two main points. The first point is we study Jesus' identity. This morning, we're going to conclude by studying Jesus' mission. So in discussing Jesus' identity, kind of setting the groundwork for where we're going this morning, we came to the conclusion that Jesus is one with the Father. And within that relationship, Jesus possesses all the divine attributes that the Father possesses. We also observed that not only is Jesus divine, but he is also able to satisfy and fill the emptiness that we have. So with the first point in mind, we can now continue our study and looking at the remaining verses and seeing how Jesus reveals to us his mission. What is his mission? Well, to begin with in, chapter, in verse 36 of chapter 6, Jesus kind of shifts the conversation 
from his identity to now his mission. Jesus writes this, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So this is a very interesting statement that Jesus is making here. Because Jesus is revealing to the Galileans that they lack an ability to understand what he is saying. They have seen his miracles. They have heard his messages. They've actually they've followed him. They've given up a lot of, a lot of their, uh, their life work to follow after him. But yet they lack the essential element to understand who he claims to be. They lack in understanding his mission as well. So we see that the one thing that they do lack is they lack the ability to believe, to profess faith. We see examples of this this idea of lacking faith all throughout this passage. In verse 26, as we talked about last week, Jesus addressed, when he's addressing the crowd, he says, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They saw signs, but they continued to follow after Jesus because they want another free meal. They lacked the faith to understand. In verse 38 and 28, when the people said, What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe, that you profess faith in him whom he sent. And we see they they still don't get it in verse 41. When the Jews, they, they grumbled because he made this statement that I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So over and over and over again, we see numerous examples in this passage where the Galileans or the Jews, they're not getting who Jesus is. Why is that? Is Jesus fa- is he failing in what he is telling them? Is he, is he not doing what he sent to do and bringing them to salvation? Now, the reason why they do not believe is because the, it is the Father's will for them not to believe. And that's what brings us to our point. Jesus' mission is ultimately to submit to fulfilling the will of the Father. Look at what he says here in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is the will and what is the Father's will according to Jesus in this passage? But look what he says in verses 38 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So using the statement this morning, we're going to take two key observations that we can get that kind of feeds or filters out of our first big point that we made about the, the Galileans lacking faith because the Father chose not to, to give them faith or to enable them to believe. But the points we could grab that come, come out of that is this idea of, one, Jesus redeems the elect. And second, he promises or he brings about eternal life and resurrection for those who were his. So let's talk about the first one, he redeems the elect. 
So when we look at this passage, we kind of, we have this in the background, this idea of the Galileans' failure to understand Jesus and his mission. We've kind of really talked about that. The reason why they failed to understand, because it was the Father's will for them not to, for them, for, not, to, for them not to understand. So the Father chose not to grant them the ability to believe. We see this in 37 and 44 when Jesus uses the phrase, the Father gives me, whom the Father gives me, they will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if we look at these verses in light of this idea of faith, we see that the conclusion that Jesus is telling him is that the reason why they're not believing, the reason why they're not coming to, to profess faith in Christ is because God has not given them the faith to believe. This is crucial for us to understand because what Jesus is pointing out here in this passage is that the Father is the one who initiates salvation. We've kind of talked about that in the call to worship, right? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And this was done before the foundations of the world, which we read earlier, right? Then we see that those whom he predestined, he calls to faith. And this is effective. And it's effective because it accomplishes what it set out to do. Let me stop there and do a little side note. When I'm referring to the Father or if I'm referring to God, please make please have in mind that I'm referring to the triune God. I'm referring to the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in bringing about salvation and in, in, in bringing about redemption and applying those benefits to us as the Spirit does. So whenever I make reference to God, please have in mind I'm also talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as well. Okay. So going back to this is that when... When he's predestined us, he, he calls us to faith. It's effective because he accomplishes what it's set out to do. If he calls you to faith, you will come to faith. In his book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, John Murray starts, states it this way. He says, God calls... Since it is effectual, it carries with it the operative grace whereby that person is called, is enabled to answer the call, which is professed faith, and to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. It's crucial for us to look at this because when we look at the next phrase, looks on the Son, as we see in the passage, and looking on the Son is referring to that that. What Jesus is saying is whenever you look onto the Son, you're professing faith and believing in the Son. And so when we are called to believe in the Son, we are acknowledging not only that He exists, but that He accomplishes redemption for us. He accomplishes everything on our behalf. For the Son was sent to redeem us, to redeem the ones who the Father has called. So those who question Jesus in this passage, they fail to see that he satisfies their longing only because the Father has, not, has made it impossible for them 
to embrace it. They fail to see that Jesus is the one who is the the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the one who brings redemption because the Father has not given them the ability to profess it or to believe it. They're not able to embrace who Christ was and what he has accomplished for them because it was the Father's will for them not to. In this commentary on John, R.C. Sproul tells this interesting conversation that he has with this doctor. It's kind of funny because in reading this, this is not a conversation I would have with my doctor. Um, My doctor would probably think I'm crazy. But Sproul talks about this question. I guess his doctor goes to his church. But his, his, his doctor pulled him aside and said, Mr. R.C., I struggle with limited atonement. I struggle with this idea that God did not intend to save everybody. How can I handle that? And we probably would all agree with the doctor, right? I mean, that's a difficult doctrine to hold to. Sproul decided that he would respond to the question of the doctor by asking another question. And he said this. Now, when you prescribe a medication for me, do you cross your fingers and hope that it has some healing impact on my life? Or do you have a reasonable degree of confidence that the the, the medication you prescribe will actually treat what you intended it to treat? And her response to him was, you know, the latter, that it will do what I prescribe it to do. And Sproul responded, well, good. I mean, hearing that from a doctor, that would be good news, right? Because you would want the doctor to prescribe medicine that actually works. Well, Sproul continues, says, well, due to our mortality and, and being finite beings, you, you're, you're not quite sure that the medicine that you do prescribe to me will cause me to have a violent reaction. Nevertheless, you prescribe it with great hope. But I could take the medicine and I could break out and it could have a, a, a negative effect. But you continue to prescribe it. He said, well, let's think about that in the context of what your question about limited atonement. He said, do you think when God planned his salvation that he just threw some medication out there and hoped that some people would take advantage of it and be healed? Or did he know the effect that it would have, was going to have, since he had sovereignly determined that there were those people who are going to be healed with the medicine that he offers, the medicine of his son. And her response was, I never thought of it that way. So you look at Sproul's illustration in the context of this passage, it brings to light this, this difficult idea that, as, that, we, that we struggle with as believers. I would say that as believers, we do struggle with limited atonement. But... But it's interesting for us to look at this and see that we cannot escape this idea or this truth that God is ultimately the author of salvation. That he brings those to salvation whom he has determined will be saved. And we we have to swallow this tough pill. And we have to believe it. Because we cannot let our personal emotions cloud the truths of Scripture. When the Lord draws an individual to salvation, he is going 
to continue and to keep that individual and to carry that individual through all of the order of salvation. He's going to make sure that individual is not only called, but he's also uh, regenerated, and that he also has faith, and that he's also justified, and that he's, also, he's adopted, and that he continues, and he's, he's living in the process of sanctification. He's becoming more and more like Christ each day. And in the end, he guarantees that there's going to be a glorification if he or she perseveres to the end. They will be glorified. They will be perfected. In other words, what he starts, he's going to see it to its completion. That is the God that we worship. And that is the, 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 that is the God that we see here in this passage. Now let's... Now what would happen though if, if we were to look at this passage and, and say, okay, well let's say that the Father did choose to awaken the hearts of the Galileans and the Jews. And let's say that he enabled them to believe the gospel. Well, they would be able to profess faith. They would be able to declare who Jesus is. They would be able to, to acknowledge that he is the one who, who is bringing about salvation for them. They would be able to receive the offer of salvation. But according to this passage, it was not the will of the Father for them to believe. So what should be our response to this passage? When we look at this and we see that the Father is the one who initiates salvation, that he's the one who draws, how should we respond to that? I think ultimately we should respond with a sense of humility. Why? Because the Lord could have easily chosen to condemn us all. And instead of electing some because of our sin, because of our depravity, he could have just brought his wrath upon us and said, I'm, I'm, I'm through. I'm done with all of you. But instead, because of his great love for us, he gave us his son, he gave up his son for us so that believing in him, we may have eternal life. We will have eternal life by believing in him. What's great about this is it's not that he chooses us because of our looks, our nationality. I mean, if it was our looks, I definitely would not get chosen. Not, it's not our nationality. It's, it's not something good. It's, it's not in us. It's not our great sense of humor. It's, it's out of his grace, his good and loving grace that he chooses to show favor towards us and calls us and enables us to profess faith in Christ. That is why we should be humble. Think back to the passage we read in the Old Testament, the Ezekiel passage. Like Ezekiel kind of points to this time when this is, when this is uh, fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, when he says in verses 26 and 27, that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's the Lord that's doing it. And I, the Lord, remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. 
He's done all of this for you, for me, for the elect. Therefore, we should respond with a sense of humility. But not only has the Father called and the Son has redeemed, the Spirit has regenerated our hearts so that we are able to profess faith in Christ. But look at the passage. We also receive a a blessing in being in relationship with Christ. We receive eternal life. Not only do we receive eternal life, but we receive a promised resurrected life that is to come. Look at verse 37. He says this, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, That I should lose nothing of all that he, the Father, has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, Should... That it should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, and I will raise him up on the last day. And finally, in verse 47, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus is telling us the blessing and the promise that comes out of being called and elected and chosen in Christ is that we have eternal life with him. But only that we have a promised resurrected life that is to come. That is the benefit that we have. But it's important for us to flesh out the difference between the two, eternal life and the promised resurrected life. Because when Jesus talks about in this passage about this eternal life, what he's referring to is a present reality. When he's speaking in verse 47 that whoever believes has eternal life, What he's referring to there is that for those who are called and regenerated and and professing faith in Christ, you have been given the promise of having eternal life in the present sense. You have been promised a life that will have no end. That is a present reality. Before we came to faith in Christ, due to Adam's sin, our, our, the condemnation of, of it is, you know, is death. The punishment for our sin is death. Death is the punishment. So it, if before Christ, what was the promise that we had? We had? The promise was death. But now since we are in Christ, the promise that we have is we have eternal life. The present reality of living an eternal life in Christ. Christ has, in a sense, replaced our mortality with immortality. We have the promise of eternal life. W.B. Henson, a great preacher of generations past, kind of spoke of this experience of what it's like living with eternal life in mind. He told this story of the time when he went to a doctor and his doctor told him that he had an illness that he would never recover from. So Henson decided that he would just respond you know, to the, the doctor's diagnosis, 
And his response to the doctor's diagnosis was he just walked out of the office, drove five miles, and he went on a hike. He looked at the mountains that he loved. He looked at the rivers that he rejoiced in seeing. And he looked at the trees that demonstrated God's poetry to him, to his soul. He looked at all of the creation, the things that he enjoyed. And when the evening was coming, he sat down and I think he kind of came to the conclusion of the, his immortality and how he was going to die. And he looked at creation and how that would continue on. And he said this. He said, I looked at the mountain. And he said, I may not live and see this mountain anymore. But when I'm gone, I will live longer than this mountain will. He went to the river and he said, I may not live to see this river anymore on earth. But when I die, I will live longer than this river will ever run. He looked at the stars and he saw the twinkling of the stars and he said, I may no longer be able to see these stars, but when I die, I will live longer than these stars will ever live. See, Henson's observation was creation that though we look at the mountains and though we look at the rivers and though we look at the stars and we think you know, that they will continue on. Ultimately, they have a time when they will be no more. But for us in Christ Jesus, we have the promise of eternal life to where we will live beyond the mountains. We will live longer than the river. We will live longer than the stars that twinkle in the sky because we have been promised eternal life in Christ. Everything will pass away. But we will live forever because we're in Christ Jesus. That is the present reality. Though we live in Christ, we have eternal life in Christ, we profess faith in Christ, we have been promised eternal life. But we also have been promised the resurrected life, a life that is to come. When Jesus states, I will raise it up on the last day, what he's referring to in this passage is that there's a future day when all things will be made right. There's coming a day in his second and final coming when everything will be brought to an end. And we will see this idea of the resurrected life take place. At the Lord's command, when Christ will descend and those who are in Christ will be raised up to glory. 
Paul kind of fleshes this idea out in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, what is sown in, is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. What is sown is, in dishonor is raised to glory. Because of our faith in Christ Jesus, we have eternal life, but we also have the promised future resurrected life that is to come. A life when all the pain and suffering is done away with. The present reality in Christ Jesus, we have eternal life. The future reality is that since we're in Christ Jesus, we have that future guaranteed, promised, resurrected life that is to come. The eschatological life, if that's what you would like to call it. But what do we do between we're living in the present reality of eternal life in Christ, but we're waiting and we're anticipating this final eschatological life that is to come, this final resurrection. Well, we can rest in the hope of the words that Jesus offers in this passage. He says, He will never cast us out, nor will he lose those who are given to him. We can rest in that. We can persevere through that. Because that's really what we're called to do. Living in this tension between the two. Is to rest knowing that we will never cast out. But also we're called to persevere. To persevere. It's important for us to discuss about this whole idea of persevering as well. Because it fits within the context of this passage. We talk about perseverance of the saints or those, the, the saints persevering. What I'm not saying is that all of those who profess faith in Christ or all of those who come to church will one day persevere to the end because we know of the distinction between the visible and invisible church, right? There are those who are part of the visible church that will not persevere to the end. There are those who appear to be believers. They may be enthusiastic about their faith, but eventually they give up. They decide to walk away and never come back. We see this. Jesus points this out in the passage. If you continue to look on in this text, we see that, that there are those disciples in verse 66 that, that actually turn back and they walk away from him. Because it's a tough pill for to swallow that he is the bread of life. So we know that those who are part of the invisible church, that there are those who will not persevere. But we know that there are those who will. Those who are referred to as the true believers, those who are devoted to Christ. And using the language of the Westminster, they're the ones who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They love him sincerely. They endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him. They're the, they, they abide in Christ and in his word. They live a life devoted to Christ. Those are the ones who persevere. 
And this is, a distinction is important for us to note here because when Jesus is referring to those that will, will not, that he will not lose and those that uh, he assures that he will, will carry and that he will raise up on the last day, those, are, those individuals that he's referring to are those who are faithful believers. Those are the ones who will face faithfully persevere to the end. Those are the one that the Father calls and the Son redeems and the Spirit applies the benefits of salvation. Those are the ones that Arthur Pink would agree with Arthur Pink in this statement when he says, eternal predestination guarantees eternal preservation. We can agree in that. We can agree with what he's saying there. Why? Because those who the Father eternally predestines are the ones that are guaranteed that they will eternally persevere. So we can affirm with Pink that that statement is true. So in the beginning, we started examining Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. We started talking about how Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God, how Jesus is the true bread of life who, who satisfies all of our longings. And this morning we talked about how Christ is our Redeemer and how through, through understanding that Christ redeems us, we also have the benefits of eternal life now, but we also have that guaranteed eschatological that resurrected life that is to come. Those are key to understand as we look at Jesus' mission. But ultimately, when we talk about Jesus' mission, his main purpose was to fulfill the will of the Father. And he fulfilled the will of the Father by maintaining those whom the Father gave him by redeeming those whom the Father gave him and by promising them eternal life and resurrected life. He fulfilled it. So what is our response to all of this this morning? Not only are we called to be humble, Because of God's calling us to salvation. But I think we should also be able to rejoice. Rejoice in our salvation. Rejoice in the life that is to come. Rejoice in our status now that we have been given eternal life in Christ Jesus. We can rejoice. We can be happy about that. We be happy to know that we have a resurrected life to come. One where all will be made right. But let us, faithful believers, continue to persevere until that time comes. Let us live our lives in devotion to Christ and to his word, 
and to each other. Because that is what Christ has called us to do. Let us pray. Understanding election and predestination and all of those doctrines, Father, can be difficult to wrap our minds around. And as we looked at this passage this morning, as we concluded our discussion of Jesus being the bread of life, Lord, I pray that as we kind of dove into those doctrines, Lord, that we would walk away rejoicing. Rejoicing in what Christ has done for us, rejoicing in, in our salvation, rejoicing in our regeneration, rejoicing in all of the benefits that we have in Christ now. But Father, I also pray that we would walk away humbled. Humbled by it, it was only by your grace that you chose us. Father, we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.